Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast developed by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. I'm your host, Katherine Atchison. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the rising rates of congenital syphilis and how clinicians can address them in Title X settings with Dr. Lindley Barbie. Dr. Barbie is a faculty member at the University of Washington School of Medicine and medical director at the Public Health Seattle and King County STD Clinic. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Barbie. We're so excited to talk with you today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So just to start with, can you give our listeners an idea of what syphilis rates look like in the U.S. today, especially among female patients of reproductive age? And are there any disparities in those syphilis rates among female patients, such as age or across races? Yes. So unfortunately, we have seen a fairly dramatic increase of syphilis among cisgender women of reproductive age in the past several years. Between 2016 and 2020, there's been nearly a fourfold increase in primary and secondary syphilis, which are the symptomatic stages of syphilis. And the rates are definitely differential. So as with all the bacterial STIs, syphilis really highlights our racial and ethnic disparities in our nation. Black individuals or Black women were four times more likely to test positive for syphilis than non-Hispanic white women. And along with those cases, have cases of congenital syphilis risen alongside those symptomatic and infectious syphilis infections in women? And by how much and what disparities are seen in congenital syphilis? cases. Yes, unfortunately. The CDC recently released the 2020 STD surveillance report, and they concluded that congenital syphilis cases have increased more than 500% since 2011. And if we just look at from 2016, kind of the parallel to the numbers I just gave you, it's been more than a threefold increase. This was a total in 2020 of 2,148 reported congenital syphilis cases. I'm pretty sure there's probably an undercount as well especially given the COVID pandemic during 2020. And unfortunately, consistently over about the past 10 years of this rise in congenital syphilis, about 7% of those 2,100 congenital syphilis cases result in death, either stillbirth or neonatal demise. And going from there, just to review from our listeners, aside from stillbirth and neonatal death, what are some of the outcomes of untreated syphilis during pregnancy? Yeah, so Congenital syphilis is definitely one of the worst outcomes that we have among the the sexually transmitted infections. And as I said, the worst outcome of, of congenital syphilis is death. And that can happen either in utero, so miscarriage before 20 weeks or stillbirth after 20 weeks, or death shortly after birth. But even beyond that, many of these cases deliver prematurely and have all of the associated issues associated with prematurity. Babies with congenital syphilis can have other abnormalities, such as in their bloodlines. Thrombocytopenia is very common, anemia. It can affect their liver and cause jaundice and other liver abnormalities. It can affect the bones as well as the teeth. We can also see infection in the central nervous system in the form of a meningitis or ocular or otosyphilis, um, leading to blindness or deafness later on in life. It can be truly devastating and have lifelong consequences. That is very serious. Do we know what factors are kind of contributing both to this uptick of infectious syphilis among female 
patients of childbearing age, and then, of course, that knock-on effect of congenital syphilis. What factors contribute to that? Yeah, it's not entirely clear what is going on, but we certainly see an association with methamphetamine use and opioid use, as well as homelessness. But I will say we've done a lot of analyzing of the data here in Seattle and King County, and nearly half of the cases don't have an identifiable risk factor or traditional risk factor. So going from kind of this epidemiological overview, if you will, let's turn to the new or they came out about a year ago, CDC treatment and testing guidelines. So those dropped in July 2021. It had a number of new guidelines and recommendations on syphilis testing, especially when there's a positive pregnancy test. Can you describe those changes and why they're important? Yeah. So syphilis screening at the first prenatal visit has always been recommended and is actually mandated in 45 The newest CDC guidance is to also screen in the third trimester around 28 weeks or kind of concordant with the glucola test. And in areas of high prevalence of syphilis or among women who are at elevated risk of acquiring syphilis during pregnancy, the CDC is now recommending screening at delivery as well. And for individuals who are not engaged in healthcare, testing for syphilis at the first pregnancy test is recommended. This is in part because one of the major barriers or kind of missed prevention opportunities is a lack of prenatal care. So capturing individuals at risk whenever they're engaged in the healthcare system is really important. In Seattle, where I work, 60% of our congenital syphilis cases were associated with a lack of prenatal care. And so we recommend that pregnant persons be tested for syphilis whenever they interact with the healthcare system, such as presenting to an emergency room for something completely different, jail, or if they present labor and delivery. Within recent years, more rapid or point-of-care syphilis testing has been made available in some places. Do these point-of-care tests, as opposed to the traditional two-step RPR followed by confirmatory testing, have a role in testing pregnant patients and preventing congenital syphilis? I think they certainly can. The point-of-care test, there are two that are available on the market. Neither is perfect, but none of syphilis testing is perfect. It's really complicated. But as I said, about 50% of congenital syphilis cases are due to a lack of prenatal care. Another 40% are due to lack of treatment, meaning they were diagnosed but not treated. The diagnosis can come you know, one to two weeks after they've had their blood drawn, and then they have to come back for an injection. And in some cases, if they're diagnosed as late latent or unknown duration, they actually need three weekly shots of benzathine penicillin, which can be really difficult, particularly for people who are living homeless or using methamphetamines. Um, And because of the pharmacokinetics, there's really no wiggle room on the number of days in between doses. So it really needs to be every seven days. So kind of in this context, if you could come up with a strategy where you could do a rapid test to determine if an individual has syphilis and treat them immediately, that would be ideal. And we're starting to do that here in Seattle King County in certain settings. So what I would recommend is to do the test, treat if the test is positive, but continue to confirm that with your traditional treponemal specific and your RP quantitative RPR on the same day. 
the vast majority of our listeners work in the Title X network of clinics. So they're not providing prenatal care, but they do see women who may test positive or are seeking that preconception care or are just perhaps open to pregnancy. So what should clinicians keep in mind about syphilis when they're seeing patients who may not be pregnant, but could be down the road or are really trying for pregnancy? For providers, I think all providers, regardless of where their patients are in the conception continuum, need to talk to their patients about their patient's sexual behavior, finding out what their risk factors are and their prevention methods. And that will give you a sense of frequency of screening. And it is a really good idea to get kind of a baseline syphilis test prior to pregnancy. One of the things that, as I just said, is really difficult is when we don't know when syphilis was acquired, we usually default to treating with three weekly shots, which can be very difficult to complete for many people. So getting a baseline syphilis test is always a good idea, particularly if they're trying to get pregnant within the next year. And of course, we've talked mostly about women thus far in our podcast. However, men are also affected and men who have sex with women especially in the case of congenital syphilis. But when syphilis in men is discussed, it's often in the context of MSM transmission. But what should clinicians keep in mind about syphilis when male patients report that they have insertive vaginal intercourse? Cisgender women um, are having increasing rates of primary and secondary syphilis. It means that their male partners are as well. And we have seen that increasing throughout the United States as well. And CDC recommendations now are that sexually active heterosexual men under the age of 29 be tested for syphilis annually. And those who are at elevated risk with things like incarceration also be tested. In Seattle, King County and Washington State, we recently released updated screening guidelines for cisgender heterosexual men and women because of this increase. And we are recommending that anyone of reproductive age under the age of 45 who is sexually active be screened at least once since January of 2021, when we saw the rate go up really enormously in our area. We're also recommending that individuals who are using methamphetamines, opiates, are incarcerated or living homeless, be screened anytime they present to the healthcare system. So not just the pregnant individuals, but really anyone who is at risk. This has been very educational, but it has also been kind of that brief overview. So where can our clinician listeners go if they would like to learn more about syphilis Or where can they go if they're looking for some good resources to give to their patients about syphilis, particularly congenital syphilis? So glad you asked that question. I have two resources that I like to give to providers. The first is the CDC's National STD Curriculum. You can Google that at National STD Curriculum. And it's an online course and it provides CME and CNE to learners. And it's a really excellent way to learn more about all of the STIs. It has a question bank and it also has chapters with great images. For syphilis clinical management, the other resource that I really like is the New York City's Health and Mental Hygiene Monograph on the Diagnosis, Management, and Prevention of Syphilis. It is also free and online and can be found via Google. The uh, infographic for patients that providers can use with their patients 
I really recommend looking at the California Department of Public Health website. California has endured some of the highest rates of congenital syphilis and for a longer period of time and have done a really great job of developing infographics. They have uh, really great resources that are free and available. Before we say goodbye today, what would you say are your top takeaways for clinicians as they return to their practices about addressing syphilis and congenital syphilis and preventing it in particular? A few things I want clinicians to remember. Syphilis is on the rise. It never went away, but it is definitely here at the moment. It's not just among men who have sex with men, it's among heterosexuals, and in particular women and being passed on to their unborn babies. Congenital syphilis is an entirely preventable disease. The way to prevent it is screening, screening early and screening often, and getting people who screen positive treated. More broadly, with syphilis, I want to remind you that Osler said to know syphilis is to know medicine because syphilis is complicated and everybody understands that it's complicated and ask questions. Refresh your knowledge on syphilis and what the primary and secondary images may look like. It can present in many different ways. I have seen cases that have stumped many a specialist who were sent to patient from one specialist to another specialist for a variety of symptoms before they were actually diagnosed. I have had individual patients who underwent surgery for enlarged lymph nodes. If they had had a sexual history taken, they might have been saved from unnecessary CT scans and surgery. So think syphilis, understand syphilis, screen for syphilis, and talk to your patients about their sexual history. It really is an important part of your care of your patient, whatever your specialty is, because syphilis can present in the eye clinic, in the ENT clinic, in the surgery clinic, in the OR, (laughs) make sure any provider needs to know how syphilis can present. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Barbie, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for the Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning on Twitter at NCTCFP, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers established and funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees and service sites and other family planning providers. This podcast is supported by DHHS grant number one, FPTPA 0060-31-01-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DA, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions or products described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. 
other production support provided by the Collaborative Advanced Health Services at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files. Thank you.